Welcome to The Sale Ring, a podcast dedicated to real estate brokers, agents, and America's top auctioneers that keep the markets moving. Join your hosts, Sean and Trina, as they talk with most successful realtors, marketing and technology experts, investors, and influencers. This show is devoted to all industry professionals looking to up their game and stay up to date. Welcome to The Sale Ring. Welcome to this episode of the Sale Ring Podcast Show. Trina, how was your weekend? My weekend was amazing. It's fall in Kansas City, and that's my favorite time ever. It's nice and cold outside and frosty. I love it. The Chiefs managed to lose another game. Yeah, we don't want to talk about that. Yeah, that was a bad day. We've got our good friend Mike Branley in yeah. the studio with us. Mike, how are you today? I'm good, guys. Wonderful to be here. And uh, I don't follow the Chiefs much, but... Um, I feel for you. Yeah. We have some football issues, uh, uh, NFL issues in Ohio as well. Yes, you do. It never fails. You know, the first couple games they played, I didn't watch, and uh, they won. They won like their first, I don't know, three or four games, and I was busy different times I didn't watch. Then uh, I've watched the last two. They've lost both of them. You need to stop watching. I may be the jinx. Yes. My husband maybe swears it's his sweatshirt he had on last night. <laughs> Mike says there may be some connection there. Uh, I hope that's not the case. We've got an interesting topic today. Firearms. Firearms sales. And if you're an auctioneer, if you're a practicing auctioneer, this is going to be of interest to you. They just concluded the National Auction Summit here in Kansas City. Mike Branley, that's uh, with us today, was one of the speakers at the National Auction Summit and brought up some interesting facts about the auction resale business at auction. I think everybody's uh, most, I saw a lot of eyes in the room that were as big as silver dollars while you were talking in there because they, uh, they said, well, that's how I'm conducting auctions right now. And a lot of them are doing it incorrectly. Yeah, I'd say that's fair. Uh, we uh, probably could have talked about it for a good bit longer. We had lots of good conversation. Great to be out at the National Auction Summit again. And they seemed, uh, the, the group there, they seemed to take it in. But it was the typical, um, well, we've been doing it this way, or we heard you could do it that way, or this is, or in some cases, this is the first time we heard this type of information. Yeah. Well, let's dive in like this. For In your estimate, uh, what percentage of the auction business and the estate sale business, what percentage do you believe that have firearms, whether that's one or 10 or 100 firearms at it? What percentage do you think of overall estate auction sales in this country have a firearm in them? If you well, had I'll to guess. You, if I was to guess, I would say well over half of the on-site estate type and that's the term the ATF uses, the state type with a hyphen, meaning uh, the typical or customarily on-site auction, Aunt Sarah died and we're selling her stuff, or or maybe Sarah's uh, downsizing and moving to Florida, and that's that estate type auction. She's It's on-site, single seller, no consignments, that type of thing, and we're trying to settle up her affairs to... to to move or, or settle like up in a state or guardianship or something. And I would guess that, yeah, uh, uh, maybe not in every jurisdiction, but I would say if you rolled it all together, I bet, I bet over half of them have a firearm, more okay. than one. 
That's impressive if you think about how many auctions will take place even this weekend in uh, Kansas City here where we're located. There was probably in the general Kansas City region in and around the city, there was eight to 10 auctions just this weekend. Yep. And half or more of those would have involved or potentially would have involved the sale of one or more firearms, handguns, long guns. Typically, there's there's other types of firearms. There's semi-automatic, fully automatic, uh, uh, modified, uh, all kinds of other things, uh, curio relics, if you will, that we're really not focusing on today. But uh, generally, that handgun or long gun, not hard to find. In the United States, we have more firearms than we have people. Well, yeah, I mean, Sean has a whole collection. He's got enough for you, me, and our extended families at his house. <laughs> He does. I, I mean, well, we have one at home, too. Well, we have a couple, but most people yeah. I know have at least two. I have two minutes. We have about 340 million firearms yeah. out, and we have less, just a little bit less than that in terms of population in the United States. And the other interesting thing along those lines would be that only about a third of residences have more than one firearm in the home. So we have a large number of firearms concentrated in about one-third of the population. Is it fair to say that those are the firearms that, that we know of? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, uh, that, yeah, that we know of, that are um, substantiated from, say, manufacturer sales and or background checks and things like that. So, there, yeah, there's a, another whole market. There may actually be more. Wouldn't surprise me if there were far more. The Sale Ring, online at www.thesaleRing.com. Firearms have taken the forefront in the news, and and they're getting a lot of publicity right now because of certain acts by certain individuals, and and justifiably so. I mean, I, I think you have to pay attention to it whenever you have those kind of actions out of individuals. But in the same token, there's belief systems on both sides of the fence as far as firearm ownership in America. There are a lot of individuals out there that collect firearms and, you know, enjoy and use firearms that obviously have no intent of inflicting harm on others with those. But uh, they're going to get caught in the middle in in this debate, Mike. Uh, That's right. That's right. We have a uh, nation that is somewhat divided in um, I have a right to keep and bear. That's what the Second Amendment says. And and so uh, you can't, uh, the, oftentimes you hear, you can't infringe on that. Now, I got news for those folks. We've been infringing on it since the 1930s, and we mm-hmm. infringe on it today. For example, background checks required in certain instances. You have to be so old. You have to be 18 to have a long gun. Uh, I have to be 21 for a handgun. We do infringe, but to which way is the pendulum swinging? And and I've told many people, I think we discussed at the National Auction Summit, wouldn't surprise me in 10 years, maybe less, if we had universal background checks. Yeah. I don't know that I'm uh, totally opposed to stringent background checks when you're purchasing a firearm, but let me qualify that when I when I say that. I'm going to meet those requirements. Yeah. I have a clean history, a clean bill of health, if you will. And uh, most of some of our listeners may or may not know this. I had 10 years of work in corrections, was my first job. 
there in Oklahoma. I ran a horse training program for the Department of Corrections. And I met a lot of individuals that um, I can tell you have no business with a firearm. There are a lot of individuals that, you know, they need a Bible in their hand worse than they need a firearm, which um, I'm not opposed to them having to go through a background check prior to qualifying for and purchasing a firearm. And if that uh, requires me to do the same thing, then I'm okay with that as long as I still have access to that at the end of the process. I think that's going to, that's what scares most people about this, Mike. It's not just the tightening of the regulations, but it's the, it's the slippery slope of this is another step towards enforcement and, and the taking away of firearms from the public, which I'm not in favor of. Right. That, that is, you couldn't have said it any better, Sean. Uh, it's the slippery slope argument. Well, once we have universal background checks, what's next? Uh, do we confiscate guns, uh, rag, red flag laws that uh, you report your neighbors acting a little funny and the police can come in and take the firearms out of the house? That already happens in the United mm-hmm. States and in some states. So what's next? What's next? What's next? That's, that's what worries that half of the population, I suppose, or maybe more than half, that that additional regulations will lead to further regulation and, and maybe deprive you or someone from the rightful uh, ownership and uh, to keep and bear an arm. Country's definitely transitioning right now during this time. Trina, you said you have a couple of firearms in your house. Yeah, I'm not a firearm lover either. So I'm I'm with you. Like I, I totally agree that um, there should be background checks and I'm in full agreement myself that they should be taken away at a certain point. I think it should be an ongoing background check where it, you know, just like your license, if you can't drive again tomorrow, you have to go get that checked and they can take that away if you, if they it's deem a, it's it necessary. A right. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if you get in 15 accidents, you probably shouldn't have your driver's license anymore. If you go and you shoot some at, at people, you probably shouldn't have your gun license anymore, you know, just certain things like that. And maybe not that you shot somebody, but you displayed, you know, certain uh, characteristics that might aim towards that. So that's my opinion. You asked for it. Sorry. What kind of firearms do you have? Uh, we have a twenty-two and a handgun, a Ruger. Squirrel gun? Yep. Just a little little play gun. Oh. It really is a, a it is a, a squirrel gun. gun. My um <laughs> my husband got it so that they could shoot crap behind the fence. It's what they got that for. Mike, are you a firearm owner? Or do you mind me asking you that? Oh, I don't mind at all. I don't own any at the moment. We sell a lot of firearms. We're FFLs, Federal Firearm Licensees, so we regularly have firearms at our every Wednesday auction. So we um, process a lot of firearms through, as an FFL, background check, 4473, form, contact the ATF, dispense according to the results of the background check, that type of thing. So we're around them all the time, sell them all the time. So we started this show out talking about regulations and, and eye-opening testament, if you will, during the class, the National Auction Summit. Some of the things you were talking about that I think caught a lot of the auctioneers in the room off guard. Let's dive into that. Let's let's talk about that just a little bit. And we don't have to get into all of it right up front, but let's kind of dissect it, if we will. Selling a firearm 
in an estate type sale. Why don't, uh, if you don't mind, explain to us what an estate auction or an estate type auction is right out of the gate? Sure. Uh, the ATF uses that term, estate type auction, and there's all the indication that they mean an on-site auction. doesn't necessarily mean somebody's dead, but uh, on-site, because they, they say there's only really two types of auctions. The other type is a consignment auction with multiple sellers, maybe at an auction house and the like. So it would leave, leave uh, I think, any reasonable view of that that, that they mean on-site. And to qualify for that estate-type exemption from licensure, federal firearm license licensure, you have one seller, not more than one. The guns are maintained and possessed and controlled by the executor or seller, not the auctioneer, but the owner. Uh, You don't have any other sellers. You don't sell out of state. You don't facilitate any interstate commerce in terms of firearms, you don't hold yourself out as a, you don't want to make an announcement at the auction. Folks, uh, keep us in mind, if you have firearms to sell, we sell a lot of firearms. You don't say that because you're not a dealer. You're not a FFL, but you're able to do that on-site auction with those qualifications um, as an auctioneer without any further, uh, I should say, federal licensing. There could be state issues. Uh, and there are some specific state issues in a handful of states, but, but we're talking at the federal level, what would apply to everybody in the United States. There wouldn't be any further licensing for that occasional one seller on site, no consignments, no out of state sales, not holding myself out as a gun auctioneer, firearms auctioneer. Okay. So if, uh, it's an estate type auction and you have guns, that you're selling inside of that estate type auction, what would be the normal protocol? Well, you would be under, in that estate type auction, under no requirements from the federal government to do uh, anything other than facilitate the private transfer of firearms, which is still legal in the United States, between the seller and the and the bidder. In other words, Sean, you can, you can go home tonight and and uh, walk next door, uh, assuming your state uh, allows that, and sell a firearm to your neighbor without a background check, without any further, no paperwork, no no nothing. Here's the firearm. Here's the money. We're done. That's private transfer. That's legal. That estate-type auction is more or less a auctioneer, an auctioneer facilitating a private transfer. So, you know, you register your bidders. You know who bought the guns because you know who bought everything. But other than that, there's nothing else required. That makes sense. I guess the big question for a lot of auctioneers, because they've been doing this, you know, as a normal practice, is having an FFL come and support their auction. And that's maybe where the conversation's going today. I I believe there's a lot of practitioners out there that uh, believe and possibly have even been told by the Department of ATF that they're doing it legally, when in fact that may not be 100% accurate. I think it's it's pretty close to 100% accurate that is illegal to partner up with or work with an FFL. In fact, if I may, on ATF's website, they have a frequently asked question section concerning firearms and auctioneers. They only have three questions. I guess apparently there's only three frequently asked questions. 
And one of them is, uh, we're talking about it right here, can a licensee, now they're talking about a federal firearms licensee, conduct background checks and transfer firearms on behalf of an unlicensed, meaning a non-FFL auctioneer? And when you click on that question, the answer starts out generally no, as most auctions do not qualify as a gun show or qualifying event, therefore a licensee would not be permitted to conduct business away from the licensed premises. So, you know, generally no is, um, I think, no, and auctions are not, as they point out here, not considered qualified events otherwise or gun shows or anything like that. So I think the answer is no. They're not talking about the auctioneer here. They're talking about the FFL not partnering with an FFL. And that might explain why there's yellow tape around an FFL's office business location out in the Midwest, uh, probably as we talk here today, uh, where he can't get into his office or store because the locks have been changed and and there's police tape up because he was an FFL partnering with, assisting an auctioneer, and the ATF said, "You, you can't do that. You're listening to the Sale Ring Podcast, taking real estate and auction to the next level. Mike, let me ask you a question, and this is a great discussion point. Let me ask it this way. Is it a new regulation or a rule change within the ATF that you're not allowed to partner or to bring an FFL licensee into the auction to handle that aspect of the sale? That's a great question. Not necessarily a new rule or law, but new in terms of enforcement. And it really took place just here recently, probably you'd say about uh, early 2016, when the president and the ATF got together and said, uh, we're going to start enforcing these rules more stringently, or we're going to take the time to pay attention to the laws and rules that regulate this. So it was this frequently asked question was last updated in 2015. So it's been this way for at least four years and maybe more officially about three years that that they've uh, stressed paying attention to these uh, guidelines. I I wonder if they've changed and and not necessarily they've changed the rules or requirements, but to your point, they're, they're starting to enforce something that, the way that it's written may be slightly ambiguous or there there could have been a little bit of question. And here's the reason I say that. I moved to Kansas City in 2007. That's been 12, 13 years ago. This would have been prior to that. I was a member and, and still a member of the Oklahoma Auctioneers Association. I remember the ATF, an individual that gave a gun and firearm sale at auction class during the Oklahoma State Auctioneers Convention. That's been a number of years ago. And prior to me moving to Kansas City, and we hope to have gained clarity out of that, which we thought we did that day in the meeting, that doing that the way, uh, conducting those sales the way that auctioneers are conducting them with the use of an FFL, not transferring the weapon at the auction. In those kind of settings, they can fill the paperwork out, but they have to go back to the location for the background check and the actual transference of the weapon. And that seemed to be uh, satisfactory in that meeting to the ATF. One of the problems that I believe that we're having 
with the alcohol Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms is you may talk to three different individuals and get three different responses from them. So do you believe that there may be a little bit of ambiguity in the way that the legislation or that the law is written? Yeah, I do think it, I think it, it is a little, well, let me say it this way. It's not entirely clear where the threshold is. When do you cross the line? When do you need to have an FFL or when, you know, how do I know if I'm on this side of the line or that side of the line? The phrase that's used is, are you engaged in the business of selling firearms? And you can be engaged in the business by taking possession of firearms. You can be engaged in the business by selling across state lines. You can be engaged in the business by helping multiple sellers at the same time, repeatedly helping the same seller, holding yourself out as a firearms auctioneer that's engaging in the business. Mm-hmm. That's not terribly easy to quantify. Some of those aren't, you know, well, I'm going to tell you, uh, the possession thing gets talked about all the time. We probably talked about it at the National Auction Summit. Well, I'm not possessing the guns. The seller brings them over to my auction house and he stands there with them. So he's possessing them. I'm not possessing them. You know, something as simple as that. The law doesn't really it takes interpret. It takes an agent or the ATF or somebody to interpret that and say, "Well, now that's we would consider that possession, or we would consider that a violation," because the law doesn't differentiate. Well, that gray area in the law is obviously it can cause some. Uh, it needs to be further defined, you know. And as an example, you've already defined what a firearm is. Just something that's that's concrete that says if you sell, you know, more than five firearms in in a fiscal year in a in a calendar year you are engaged in the sale of firearms you're in the firearms resale business or sales business you know something something that's just definite and that just puts a stamp on it and or it says if you sell any firearms at all you're in that business but it, it needs to i think it could be further defined and kind of clarified a little bit better just to uh to help get everybody on the same page you're right Maybe like a car dealer, I know in our state and maybe other states, uh, you don't need a vehicle dealer license until you sell, buy and sell. I think Ohio says five cars. Once you sell five cars, you've got to be a used car dealer. That's why if uh, Trina was my sister, I would put four in her name and four in my name and four in my brother's name and avoid getting the license. Because once you get to five, you've got to be a used car dealer. You know, if it was a number like that, everybody could, you know, that would be pretty straightforward. Yeah. But it's not like that. Life's never that easy, is it? It's not. It's not. However, looking at potentially 10 years in prison or a half million dollar fine is uh, enough that I feel compelled to tell auctioneers when they ask me, and I don't ask, I don't dictate their specific situation. I talk generally about firearms at auction. I say, you know, why would you take any risk? I mean, what's the you're going to sell 10 firearms at, at 20% commission and, and, and you're going to make what compared to the chance of serving 10 years in prison or a half million dollar fine. I don't, that doesn't weigh out very good in my mind. That's not going to be very easy either. Yeah. I'll tell you what, we're going to slip away real quick. We're going to hear from our sponsors and uh, we'll try to figure out if Trina is actually Mike's sister while we're slipping away here. We'll be back in just a few minutes with more from Mike Brantley. 
Are you looking for heavy equipment but unsure where to start? Then you need to check out auctiontime.com. Find great equipment has never been easier than bidding online at auctiontime.com. What are you waiting for? Online auctions are closing every Wednesday. So register and start bidding today. Auctiontime.com, the way to buy heavy equipment. Crude oil, natural gas, coal. Buying and selling minerals is a breeze when you have the right energy professionals on your team. Mineralmarketing.com is a leading resource for America's mineral owners. Whether you're wanting to lease or sell your mineral rights, Mineral Marketing has you covered. Mineralmarketing.com, the oil and gas marketplace. Thinking about selling a real estate investment but worried about the taxes you'll have to pay? Property owners just like you have solved their tax issue with a Starker Services 1031 exchange. One call could save you a fortune in taxes. Call Starker Services today at 800-332-1031 or visit online at www.starker.com and keep the tax dollars working for you. Ever dream of owning a country estate, historic home, or lakefront property? Log on to unitedcountry.com. Would you like to retire to a home built on breathtaking acreage in the mountains? Unitedcountry.com. Ever dream of your own private hunting preserve? UnitedCountry.com. Over 30,000 farm, recreational, and lifestyle properties are just a click away, helping people find their American dream for over 90 years. We will help you find yours. Log on now to UnitedCountry.com and find your freedom. And we're back with Mike Brandley. While we were on break, we were talking about uh, the FFL, the Federal Firearms License. Mike, it doesn't sound like that's very difficult if somebody, if an auctioneer wants to go through that process. It doesn't sound that difficult to get. It's not very difficult to get. The first criteria for most auctioneers would be uh, they need a, to own a commercial establishment, an auction house. A typical auction house would just be ideal for that. And you make application for the license. Uh, they, of course, do a background check on the auctioneer. Uh, you can't be within so many feet of an elementary school and there's other geographic issues, but once all those are solved, um, for most, it takes, um, a couple months, maybe a few months in terms of application and turning it in and the ATF coming out. And it's only $200 to get the license and it's only a $90 renewal for three years, $30 a year to keep it. So it's, it's not expensive. So uh, for most auctioneers, it's doable. So kind of summing up before break and what you just said, um, it's a hell of a lot easier not to work with an FFL and just go get your own FFL. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying if you want to stay out of prison, get an FFL. (laughs) I like that answer Because if you're working working with an FFL, the risk of uh, a substantial fine or prison are – are real material issues. Yeah. Huh. In your words, much better. Yes. To uh, avoid that. <laughs> okay. And really all you need is $200 for the initial application, $90 for a three-year renewal, and a commercial location where where you'll actually do business out of that commercial location. That's it. That, that's, the, uh, that's the overview of the requirements and 
and the ATF comes out. Of course, you got to, you know, there's there's minor details there. You have to have signs up, and you have to have, have a way to secure guns. Maybe a yeah. gun safe, for example, or a room that you put the guns in and it locks or what have you. And uh, other than that, an internet access, which I, I would think would be uh, academic, so that you can do the background checks on the internet. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. Mike, what's the downside to having an FFL? Well, some auctioneers argue that there's the downside is now the federal government is in my business. They're coming in. They're looking through my files. They're auditing my books. They're uh, and and while that's true, the benefits vastly outweigh the the costs of uh, getting an FFL. As an FFL, you can uh, take guns from multiple sellers. You can have a gun consignment auction. You could have an every every Saturday gun auction if mm-hmm. you wanted to uh, from nineteen different sellers that bring guns or firearms in. You can sell out of state. You can transfer. Uh, guns to uh, buyers all across the U.S. So online uh, auctions, uh, it would seem that if you're selling online, unless you're in a, you know, I guess if you're in Alaska or Texas, maybe uh, you could get by with uh, online as long as you only sold to, without a license, you'd have to keep all the guns in state. Um, but small states, or if you're near the state line, I mean, yeah, not selling across the state line is a real is a really big issue for an auctioneer because half your crowd is is uh, two miles away. Yeah, that's the situation the we're in here in Kansas City. We're right on the Missouri Kansas line here. Yeah, you're right. You're right on the line there. Mm-hmm. So it would make little sense for an auctioneer in Kansas City not to have an FFL because they if he was in on the Missouri side, he couldn't sell any guns to anybody in Kansas and vice versa. Yeah. Would it be smart to build your facility exactly on the line? Not in Kansas City, it would not. <laughs> Which would be right in the middle of the river. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, that's one thing that we don't see a lot of around here are river boats. River boat auctions. River boat like gun sale auctions <laughs> up and down the Missouri. Loophole. Mike, what if, I can hear it now, Mike, what if, I built my auction house on a river. On the boat. <laughs> on the river. <laughs> Mike says, well, technically, you're in international waters, so they can't touch you, brother. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's good it. stuff. Well, it's it's serious. It's it's yeah. very serious. And um, I, I would think one of the downsides is uh, you better get used to the color yellow. If uh, if you're if you have an FFL and you're not handling your business appropriately and they come in with yellow tape and wrap your file cabinets up, um, that uh, that's going to be a problem. Because now if you're going to hold the license they're they're going to come in and audit you. Is that a safe assumption, Mike? Uh, They are periodically. They're going to come in. Uh, They don't have particularly high expectations. I think that's fair, Uh, but they want it done correctly. And it's, you know, there's a log book, for example, and guns have to be logged in and logged out. And and, uh, the number for the background check has to be recorded on the form. Those forms have to be retained, et cetera. It's not not really that hard to uh, stay compliant. So if you're compliant and they come in and look at it, 
Tell your friends you get your information on the Sale Ring Podcast Show. Well, as they uh, as they say, times they are a changing. That's uh, firearm sales at auction. That business is changing dramatically. There's a lot of things going on that are uh, being front and center of the media right now, and um, a lot of attention being focused on firearms in this country. There is uh, an advantage out here at the country auction in the middle of nowhere where they have, you know, 10, 15, 20, sometimes 200 guns being sold at auction. And uh, I, I think the regulatory bodies realize that and they're taking steps to be diligent uh, to make sure that those those firearms are being tracked and accounted for in this country. That's very um, evident. If you're following what's going on and Mike, you're not only in firearm sales, let's switch gears. You're one of the foremost authorities in just auction law. I know you do a lot of expert witness testimony. Uh, is there something else you're kind of in the tail end of the show that uh, you find intriguing right now that you're involved in? Well, it, I actually I just saw a uh, video on Facebook uh, this morning about um, venue or jurisdiction in terms of online sales, and I, I, I may not have the, the facts all exactly correct, but I believe a car was sold at an online auction in either North Carolina, maybe, to a buyer in Illinois. And the auctioneer's terms and conditions said that if there's a dispute, the case will be heard in North Carolina. Well, there's a dispute because the car inked in the condition that it was described, or at least that's what the buyer is claiming, that he didn't get quite the car that he thought he was purchasing. So he filed suit, and uh, and an appeals court just maybe just the other day said because that online auctioneer is conducting business in Illinois, uh, sending emails, uh uh, corresponding, uh, uh, maybe even placing ads or the internet, they would be seen in Illinois, that they were actually doing business in Illinois. And so the case would be not heard in North Carolina, but rather in Illinois. Huh. Well, if, if that's a trend, um, that's going to be troublesome along, I think, kind of the Wayfair yeah. thing where, you know, you had to pay tax. In a in the state of destination, or the if the buyer's out of state, in certain cases, of course, this is along the same lines that we're crossing state lines to. You know, I mean, you're in uh, you're in Florida, and the uh, buyer's in Oregon, and the buyer says uh, we're going to hear this case in Oregon. How convenient is that for an auctioneer in Florida? It's not. It's not very convenient. It's not very mm-hmm. convenient for an auctioneer in North Carolina to travel to Illinois to defend himself. The internet's changed the game. The scenario you just gave about the car, to me, it seems like that change of, and I assume that that's something that's being requested by the other attorney, or or was it already? Has there been a ruling saying that it would be the the case would be heard in the state of Illinois, or are they still arguing over that? I, I think the appeals court threw it back to the county court or or um, lower court. To uh, figure out, I don't know that their ruling was binding, but I don't, I don't have all the, all the facts. I don't know that all the facts are available yet. But it appears 
that maybe we're going to see more of this where, you know, you sell online, in this case, North Carolina and Illinois, and, and despite the auctioneer's terms and conditions, which which probably say any dispute has to be heard here locally in my yeah. county, yeah. the county of the buyer is, is going to matter to a judge. Because if you sold it to somebody in another state, were you doing business there and therefore it's actionable in that state? I mean, wouldn't they have to prove in that case, though, that they were targeting buyers in Illinois from North Carolina and not just blanketing it like the U.S. car buyers? I mean, that'd be hard to prove, I would think. I don't know. That's a weird Well, it, that part, I agree with you, Trina. That, that doesn't seem uh, to hold much merit to the, yeah. the Internet. You know, anybody can pull up a website anywhere, right? Yeah, I mean, somebody in China could have saw it for all we know. Well, probably not China right. anymore, but, but you know, but yeah, getting well, out like yeah, Paris right, or something. <laughs> but um, uh, the I think it was more than that. I think it was that because the buyer had maybe inquired about the car and maybe an email went to the buyer in Illinois and the judge or judges were looking at that <laughs> and saying, well, it looks like you're doing business in Illinois. You're, you're corresponding with buyers you're emailing buyers. You're, you're. Mm. I think he bid. In fact, I don't think he bid online. I think I recall he bid on the phone. Mm. And this ruling today, I think it was today, or or maybe it was yesterday, and I heard about it today. But uh, that boy, oh boy, uh, yeah. it's hard enough to keep track of the tax issues here. Mm-hmm. If we start having to travel as online auctioneers, if we have to travel across state lines or travel across the country to defend ourselves in lawsuits. We never had that back in, you know, before the internet. We never worried about that kind of stuff. Well, but that same buyer could have come to the auction on auction day back when there was no internet and said, well, I, you know, I found out about it while I was in Illinois. You know, it, it kind of holds the same regardless of as if it was online or not. This guy is just kind of, going after it so he doesn't have to go to North Carolina to yeah, file the, the suit. It's crazy. You had people travel yeah. uh, pre-internet, but, uh, you know, uh, our auctions here in Ohio, Columbus, Ohio, center of the state, uh, how many out-of-state driver's licenses did we see back in the 1980s? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, not many. Not many. Um, if you needed if you needed a car and you were in Illinois, you probably tried to find a car pretty close by so you didn't have to travel three, four states away. Yeah. I think buyers know that it puts you at a the the auction company or the merchant at a disadvantage when you file your complaint in your own state, in your own local district or jurisdiction. It's kind of a pain in the ass at that point because I'm two states or three states away and I'm I'm filing, you know, something on you that you have to respond to, but now all of a sudden you're not in your backyard. You're in my backyard, and uh, it's it's more now. I'm I'm having you incur more expense, and I I I know that they're at a at a more of an advantage when they do that, Mike. Well, they are, and it puts an auctioneer in the position of maybe saying, "Well, maybe I'm better off just settling or taking the car back yeah. rather yeah. than the cost, the stress, the inconvenience of traveling halfway across the United States to uh, defend and." And work and and deal with a case out of my back, as you said, out of my backyard. I don't know the people. I don't know the court. I don't know the procedures. You know, we're more familiar with our local areas. We're not necessarily familiar. 
That's just the whole thing's a mess. I mean, because you could, you know, Texas auction law and Virginia auction law is way more complicated than Missouri auction law is. So, I mean, I could go online and buy something in Texas and it has all these rules and stipulations and craziness going on and bring it back here to Missouri and be like, eh, Jackson County, I'm going to file a suit against this guy in Texas. And Jackson County was like, whatever, cool, pay us, you know, we're fine with that. (laughs) But you know what I mean? And while it may be this set of laws in one state, it's going to be completely different in another Mm -hmm. state because there's not uniform auction law. I agree. That's crazy. And it's crazy to me, too, that your terms and conditions that stipulate where that law, you know, what, what the law is in your state that you're selling from doesn't come into play at all. Well, it comes into play, but but it was overridden by the judge In another or state, judges yeah. saying that local jurisdiction. Here. So if you're doing business here, he can have the case heard here. Uh, if you don't want cases heard in Illinois, then don't do business in Illinois, huh. essentially. Yeah. We're getting into a, a yeah, phase. Yeah, huge conversation. Yeah. Where, you know, auctioneers are going to have to up our games. You know, I buy something from Amazon or I buy something from Walmart or I whoever else quite frankly, and I don't like it, I return it. Yeah. Uh, Carvana gives a uh, seven-day, I think, if you buy a car from Carvana out of their vending machine, you stick a coin in and buy <laughs> we a car. We just got one of I those think you here. have seven days <laughs> to return it. Well, you know, if I buy a car from an auctioneer, I don't get seven days. I don't. If the, if the auctioneer had his or her preference, I wouldn't have any days. It's over. It's done. But, you know, I hate to say it that way, but, I mean, we're just not keeping up with commerce and retail otherwise in the United States. And, and buyers' expectations are, are raised, and and they expect to be, they expect warranties and guarantees and return policies, and that's not something the auction industry has embraced historically. Well, we have. There's two sides to that coin. You know, we have to keep up. We have to do a better job of promoting and allowing people to do their due diligence. You know, through whatever information that we're putting out there, it's got to be relied upon and. But uh, at the same token, one thing that's getting lost, I think, in today's society is personal accountability for your actions. Mm-hmm. There's no tracking mechanism for people in the auction business that have just improper or poor actions at auction that are not doing the right thing. There should be some mechanism of accountability out there. And I've talked about this till I'm blue in the face, uh, Mike, about the auction industry. We, we should have a rating system on what kind of a buyer we are. Are we a good person? Are we honest and, and forthright? And are we going to honor the obligations that we make at the auction? And is there a way of reporting that whenever we don't? And I, I think, you know, that's, uh, that's a challenge for our industry because you have people that are making poor decisions, screwing up somebody else's auction, their event, the cost of pursuing them is expensive. If you can even get them um, kind of pinned down that they're a real individual because maybe they weren't screened properly enough ahead of time. And uh, after the fact, the damage is done and they're on down the road. So that would be That's a right. great topic for the next time that we have Mike Branley on here. We're nearing yeah. the end of this show, but that's something I would love to talk to you about in more detail, Mike, is um, – Ways to essentially call somebody out and and to earmark them as watch out for this individual. Your seller needs to require a lot more information and uh, possibly even an upfront deposit something from them before they do business with them. 
and a and a and a more fair, equitable, reasonable, balanced approach where the buyer takes responsibility and the auctioneer takes responsibility. Mm-hmm. I, I in this case, briefly, I don't think this guy's. I don't think there's anything on the internet about this case. If the car had been as it had been described, now I don't yeah. know if he's making that up or I don't know if the auctioneer misrepresented it, but I have an idea what happened here. And you know, if the car's how you said it is, then. There's, there's no, no case. case. Yeah. There's no, there's nothing. Yeah. It's kind of like that little, we talked about it last time, that little strip of land that, that, that oh, got yeah. sold. that <laughs> was in between two driveways and they thought they were buying a condo. Yeah. yeah. Read yeah. the fine print. Yeah. <laughs> well, come on guys. That shouldn't actually be in fine print. Yeah. I mean, if, if that's what you're selling, put it out there and make it very clear what you're selling. Exactly. Yeah. Mike, as always, it's great to have you in the studio. Trina and I love the opportunity to visit with you. Uh, you're, you're always just a wealth of information, and uh, we appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. It is a pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this episode of The Sale Ring. Join us next time as we see you inside The Sale Ring. This episode has ended, but your journey to greatness continues. To access all resources and links mentioned in today's show, head over to www.thesailring.com now. That's www.thesailring.com.